0: Welcome to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me for interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. We have a unique and exciting opportunity as we focus on the upcoming 2019 Connected Health Conference here in Boston. Partners Connected Health is honored to be the organizing partner for this world-class event, and I'm proud to serve as program chair. For this season of Well Connected, we're excited to bring you a special collection of episodes highlighting this year's keynote speakers. Each episode will not only feature a stimulating conversation with a noted thought leader, but will provide a sneak preview into their up-and-coming keynote presentation as well. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Judson Brewer. Jud is a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and author passionate about the understanding of how the brain works and how to use that knowledge to help people make deep, permanent change in their lives with a goal of reducing suffering in the world at large. Who could argue with that? As founder of Mind Sciences, Inc., Judd pursues this noble goal by studying the neural mechanisms of mindfulness using standard and real-time fMRI as well as EEG neurofeedback. The research findings are then translated into an app-based digital therapeutic treatment program for anxiety, overeating, smoking, and other addictions. And I should mention for our listeners that I am an advisor to Mind Sciences. Dr. Brewer is also the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center, and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, in addition to being a research affiliate at MIT. Judd is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. Additionally, he's published numerous peer-reviewed articles, trained Olympic coaches. He and his work have been featured on 60 Minutes, TED, Time Magazine, Forbes, BBC, NPR, Al Jazeera, Businessweek, and many others. Judd regularly talks on the intersection of modern science and ancient meditative practices, helping to expose a modern audience to specific techniques and insights first discovered 2,500 years ago. And I'm delighted to say that he will be a keynote speaker at the Connected Health Conference 2019, hosted by HIMS at the Seaport World Trade Center here in Boston, October 16th through the 18th. And I'm privileged to be the content chair for that conference. I hope you can join us there as our theme this year will be Designing for Healthy Habits and Better Outcomes. And I'm sure our guest today will have much to say on that subject. So let's get a sample of what some of that might be. Judd, thank you for being our guest on the Well Connected podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, you're going to help us kick off our third day of the Connected Health Conference with a keynote presentation entitled Hacking our Habit Minds for Better Health. Intriguing title. I want to hear more about it. Your talk will explore the behavioral and mental processes that foster craving and the consequent habit formation, the impact these have on individual societal health, and how we can hack our own neurobiological reward circuitry using practices such as mindfulness to foster greater health and well-being. Judd, can you give us a brief preview of what you're going to be talking about at the 2019 Connected Health Conference?
1: I'd be happy to. You know, I've been fascinated the more I learn about habit formation, the more it seems that we're probably not picking up on what we already know about how habits are formed. And by that, I mean there have been some really key findings that have been you know, highlighted back in the 1950s even around how we form habits. And it seems that we've kind of taken a, a tangent in how we treat habits as compared to directly uh, taking that head on by looking at, at that uh, behavioral neuroscience. So that's one of the pieces that's really fascinated me uh, to give a concrete example, you know, B.F. Skinner became famous for his concept around operant conditioning or positive and negative reinforcement. That's been uh, amplified. Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize in 2000, showing that that process is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. So it, it does seem that we know a lot about habit, how habits are formed. Yet, if we look at the current treatments... For example, last 40 years or so, we've been relying a lot on willpower based trainings, whether it's, you know, uh, let's say weight loss, for example, you know, just make sure you don't eat this many calories and that you make uh, that you exercise a lot. You know, there's this formula that I even learned in medical school, which was make sure you have more calories out than calories in. And there's this assumption there that, you know, all, all we need is willpower. Yet that assumption is, is quite an assumption because I think a lot of people probably that develop treatments have a lot of willpower, <laughs> but a lot of people that have to actually do these treatments uh, may not have the same willpower that somebody, you know, that got a PhD or got an MD has, you know, it might be a different population. So it's interesting to look at, there may be a mismatch there that we need to step back and say, hey, can we actually bridge that gap?
0: That's really gonna be fun, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, now, I, I wanna go back to your early career. Uh, you started meditating during your first year of medical school after breaking up with your then fiance. Uh, eight years later, upon completing your MD, PhD, you shifted your professional focus from molecular biology to studying mindfulness. That's, that's gotta have been an interesting uh, 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 journey. You, you had experienced personally how it could help during stressful periods. And you also noted that mindfulness could fill a gap that modern medicine cannot. not. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that personal journey and how it shaped your thinking today?
1: I'd be happy to. It was certainly not an expected journey, but there, there it was. You know, at the beginning of medical school, I found that, you know, as I started learning to meditate, It was doing a couple of things. One, it helped me be a little more relaxed. Uh, And two, it was helping me really start to understand how my mind worked. And that was a piece that I didn't learn in college, you know, it, as I was, as I was going through college, I was a chemistry major, you know, I was learning a lot of stuff cognitively and I was, you know, I was able to kind of will, willpower my way through things and, you know, get decent enough grades to get into medical school and whatnot. But I didn't really understand how my mind worked in particular when I got stressed out and stress is when all that, you know, the, that willpower part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex starts to go offline and it can't serve us very well. So as I went through that, my MD, PhD program, you know, I was just kind of learning this as a way to, you know, learn more about my own mind. But as I finished my program and did my psychiatry rotations at the end of medical school, I started to see some really interesting parallels between what I was learning in my own meditation practice and about my own mind and where some of the gaps were with treating uh, psychiatric patients in particular things like anxiety or, and addictions. And so I decided to take this huge plunge and honestly in, in residency, I had people telling me that I was going to ruin my career if I made this Mm -hmm. shift because I, you know, I'd published pretty well uh, in, in my graduate training and had, you know, done a few things, but I really felt that I, you know, to really make a difference, uh, I needed to make this shift. And some of it had to do with translating the animal experimentation work into humans, where I couldn't answer the question, you know, do you know that what you found in mice applies to humans? I just couldn't answer that. So I wanted to understand, okay, could we actually do something in humans because then I could answer that question, yes. And also, could I shift my career into looking at the, you know, cognitive neuroscience underlying how mindfulness was was helping people? So we, you know, started actually in residency, did my first clinical trial of mindfulness training for alcohol and cocaine use disorders, just to see if it had a signal. And indeed it did. It was was a small pilot study, but it was shown to be as good as gold standard treatment, in this case, cognitive behavioral therapy and helping people uh, not relapse to drinking and cocaine use. And then we uh, took it one step further and checked to see, you know, could we actually help people quit smoking and found that we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment in our first randomized controlled trial there. And we're even able to start to work out the mechanisms underlying how it was working. And so it started to give me, give me a handle for, okay, there's there's a there there, so to speak. There is something that we could study. There's something that we could uh, develop a model for and test hypotheses. And lo and behold, we were starting to see some pretty remarkable clinical outcomes.
0: It's fascinating. I'm reminded of when, when I was uh, also a laboratory scientist and I veered off to... Uh what what uh, was we called telemedicine at the time is now 25 years later digital health. But I had the same. I I, I can resonate with people saying you're you're wa- you're you're wasting a good career. So congratulations. And and I, and I would just add again that w- mindfulness is is pretty hot right now. But uh, I'm sure it was uh, viewed as a little more fringy when when you took it on. So. Great, great to see that. It was non-existent. Exactly, to see that vision and, and uh, pursue it and, and, and what, what you've done with it, which is really wonderful. Um, Thank you. So in your TED Talk, uh, which was entitled A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, uh, it's been viewed over 18 million times. You must be incredibly happy with that kind of uh, uh, amplification of your message. And in less than 10 minutes, you describe how brains form habits and additions and how simple mindfulness practices can help break those bad habits. You talk about becoming curious and how that can move us knowing something is bad for us to becoming disenchanted with that behavior. So many chronic conditions, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, obesity, are related to lifestyle choices. Some people say 70 to 80% of our healthcare costs in the US are lifestyle related. And changing these unhealthy habits will be critical to addressing uh, this growing healthcare crisis. So, tell us uh, how mindfulness will be a solution uh, to that problem.
1: Yes, and I, I can also resonate with you. That's actually why we started focusing on specific issues like smoking and anxiety and overeating because they do affect so many people. But to answer the question, the this goes back to willpower and how, you know, we were just told, you know, well, if you want to quit smoking, just stop. (laughs) If you want to, you know, if you want to lose weight, just make sure you eat salad instead of cake and all of these things. Unfortunately, our brains, well, we, we know that our brains willpower centers are in the prefrontal cortex. And we also now know that the prefrontal cortex is the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed out. So using willpower is somewhat of a failing proposition unless, you know, I mean, I guess a cynical view would be, the, the, the diet program say, well, our program works. You just failed the program as compared to (laughs) our program might've been dead on arrival, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, so to speak. So I think that's the first piece that's really critical to understand is that we might be going about this in a very, uh, Descartes way. You know, I think therefore I am, I think therefore I can control my, (laughs) control my eating. Yet the thinking is probably the weakest part of our brain. And from an evolutionary perspective, we know this now. So that's step number one is understanding how the brain works. And that willpower doesn't actually capture the deeper, uh, more evolutionarily conserved parts of the learning process, which are around uh, reward based learning. And we also now know that reward based learning is based on rewards, not on the behaviors themselves. And by this, I mean you typically need a, a trigger, a behavior, and a quote unquote reward or a result. And this was, this is basically set up to help us remember where food is. You know, if we see food, that's the trigger. We eat the food, that's the behavior. And then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it's actually set up to help us remember where food is. Yet in modern day, that process gets co-opted To uh, to help us learn to eat when we're stressed out, for example, or to overeat, uh, to numb ourselves uh, when we're when we're anxious or something like that. I've had I can remember one of my patients with binge eating disorder who said that she would eat to numb herself. That's literally what she said. And so that reward was numbing herself when she had negative emotions. Yet ironically, because that's the only reward mechanism her brain knew, when she uh, started to feel bad or guilty about binging because she would binge 20 out of 30 days a month, She would binge sometimes a second time or even a third time in a single day because that negative emotion of feeling guilty about binging would trigger another binge. So there's an example of how, you know, how our brains just become these one trick ponies. And, you know, get locked into these, to these systems. So we know a lot about how it works. And we also now are starting to understand how we can tap into this system and actually hack it. And that's where mindfulness comes in. You know, as I mentioned, we did our first studies with uh, smoking and found that in-person mindfulness training was five times more efficacious than uh, gold standard treatment. We then started developing digital therapeutics. uh, Because we were learning, you know, people don't learn to smoke in my office, they don't learn to stress eat in my office. So could we actually bring my office to them? I think this is the, you know, this builds on a lot of the work that you uh, pioneered in terms of starting, you know, with remote medicine, so to speak. So we started developing these app-based training programs. And with our Eat Right Now program, uh, we had a clinical study where we got 40% reduction in craving-related eating. Now, this was critical because this not only showed that we could deliver this remotely and and through an app, but also it addressed the same mechanisms that we were seeing when we could uh, affect smoking cessation. And by that, I mean, we could help people bring in uh, an attitude of kindness and curiosity and simply pay attention to their cravings and ride them out that way instead of getting sucked into eating or smoking, for example. And in essence, we could tap into that very same reward-based learning mechanism that was driving people to eat is that behavior where we substituted curiosity instead of the eating behavior because curiosity feels better than craving Mm -hmm. itself. And so we could actually hack that system.
0: Really interesting. Well, it's, it's obviously groundbreaking work. I know, uh, you recently published uh, a paper on, on, uh, which was some uh, work that you highlighted, uh, uh, related to the, the neural mechanisms uh, for digital therapeutics intervention. So help our audience. Uh, uh, t- this is something that uh, I've been personally involved in, and, and and I think is the industry is um, not clear on at this point, which is, what is a digital therapeutic? So first part of the question is, you're, in your mind, what does that mean? And the second part is, tell us about the research and how that uh Uh, helps further define it?
1: I think of a digital therapeutic very simply as delivering therapy through a digital device. So that could be through a web-based platform. It could be through an app as the programs that we've developed do. Or it could be even through, you know, I think in its simplest form, uh, text-based message or text messaging-based treatment, which uh, people have done research on now.
0: And tell us about the paper. Yeah, so we just
1: published a paper in a journal, Neuropsychopharmacology, which brought together probably about 15 years worth of work Mm. for us. So that was kind of the, you know, the moonshot for us where, you know, once we had identified the mechanisms and the theory that we wanted to test and had In previous work, I'd studied a bunch of experienced meditators and found brain networks that were deactivated in experienced meditators compared to novices. And interestingly, this network called the default mode network has a lot of overlap with uh, addictions and habits. So, for example, uh, the posterior cingulate cortex, which is part of this default mode network, gets activated. When people are craving, for, for example, when uh, they're shown pictures of of cigarettes and um, when the, uh, and also they get activated when people perseverate or when they ruminate, when they're depressed. So this same network gets quiet when experienced meditators are meditating and the we did some neurophenomenologic studies using real-time neurofeedback to show that it actually seems to get activated when people get caught up in their experience, whether it's a ruminative thought or a craving. So we'd identified this brain network, we'd identified a behavioral theory on how mindfulness might work, and we could bring these together by studying in a prospective manner uh, whether my digital, Digitally delivered mindfulness training could actually uh, change brain activity and that would uh, affect outcomes. So uh, to make a long story short, we could basically bring people in at baseline who are wanted to quit smoking. We could scan their brains when they were shown these smoking cues and look to see how activated their posterior cingulate became. We could then randomize them to get uh, our Craven to Quit app, uh, which gave them mindfulness training, or we could give them the National Cancer Institute's Quit Guide as a control app, and then scan them a month later to see if reductions in brain activity predicted clinical outcomes, such as reductions in cigarette smoking. And we found a very strong correlation between a reduction in posterior cingulate activity and a reduction in cigarette smoking that was completely specific to the mindfulness Mm -hmm. training. Uh, The correlation was 0.38 and the p-value was very small. No correlation in the control group Mm -hmm. at all. We even saw a dose-dependent relationship where the more modules they completed, the better they did. Uh, That correlation was 0.49. And no correlation, again, in the control group, even though they completed the exact same number of modules. So this was this was really exciting to us because, one, it was linking up theory with brain mechanism with clinical outcomes. But two, we were seeing a very specific Mm. effect of mindfulness training itself as compared to just non-specific effects of getting a
0: digital therapeutic. Wow. So will that influence your product strategy uh, uh, in turn? Is that is there a loop, feedback loop there, or are they are they unrelated?
1: I think down the road we can potentially incorporate neurofeedback into some of the treatments, but that you know that's a large project that will probably It'll take, take a little time. bit of time. Yeah, I mean, right now what it does is confirm. Uh, and show some of the neural mechanisms of how these digital therapeutics are That's working, great. and that that piece is is readily uh, tangible for us right
0: now. Yeah, I'm I'm going to cite your work often because I think uh, uh, the first thing you said is is one that I would emphasize for for the listeners that digital therapeutic is not. Uh, uh, there there's some movement I think in the industry to, to try to make it. Synonymous with digital health, a very broad term with a with a very big tent kind of feel to it, and I think it has to be very specific to um, either compete with a chemical therapeutic or perhaps uh, do better than. um, And and so I would just underscore that uh, and and your um, research showing that that, that it, there was a real effect in the brain, uh, which is really powerful. And I think we'll probably look back on that as a, as a seminal paper because it helps us understand how a lot of these digital therapeutics are, are working. Uh, so hats off and congratulations on that one.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. And I think it's really important for all of us in this field to be taking theories and testing those theories and showing how the digital therapeutics actually affect those from a mechanistic perspective. We should be holding ourselves to the same standards as people developing cancer therapeutics where you know they're targeting a specific mechanistic pathway. Yeah. I think we now are starting to learn enough about things like habit formation uh, and other psychiatric melodies that we can, you know, we can actually take that same mechanistic approach.
0: Very, very, very exciting. Uh, So I'm going to ask you now, uh, you were quoted uh, in in the Washington Post recently saying, uh, and I quote, our brains are set up to predict the future, end quote. So, of course, I have to ask uh, somewhat with tongue in cheek, but go with it. Uh, what does your brain predict for the future of behavior change and and the future of creating healthy habits
1: <laughs> that's a great question so I can only look into the near future. my brain tends to de- you know dis- delay discount
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and aim for you know immediate uh, rewards over long term rewards, and I would also say that the Digital therapeutics are changing so rapidly mm. that it's it's really hard to get an accurate prediction, say, 10 years down the road. So what I can say and then I can at least predict in the near term, I can't say that this will certainly be true, is that more and more uh, folks will be turning to mechanistic data. Uh, pathways to really target specific maladies as compared to coming up with these uh, kitchen sink approaches or other other things that that look great but might not be able to be explained from a mechanistic standpoint so that's the first piece the second piece is that i would predict that and i think we're already starting to see this that folks are starting to be able to use ai and machine learning algorithms more uh more I wouldn't say more accurately, but more usefully as they start to incorporate these into uh, prediction algorithms and things like that for personalizing medicine. Just as an example, in the study that I just mentioned, we had an interesting serendipitous finding, which was that about 13% of the people in the study had no... Brain cue reactivity to the cues, uh, so they just didn't respond to the cues, and for the, and they also showed a significant, significantly less of an effect uh, in the treatment. So for some reason, their brains are different, and we can see this manifesting in clinical outcomes. So we can start to take things like, uh, I mean, neuroimaging is an extreme example because it's a little expensive. But we could start to develop these approaches where we can screen people at baseline and start to offer personalized treatment. And I think we'll start to see more of this as we understand personal profiles, as we start to understand the neurobiology more and more, where we can then say, okay, you know, let's do this quick screen at baseline. For you, we think this treatment's good. For you, we think, you know, this treatment is good. And I think for those populate for everybody, it's going to really help streamline and increase the efficacy of treatment as we really move into a personalized medicine age. I think we've been talking about this for a long time, but I think we're really starting to move into this
0: now. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's a very, very exciting time. Judd, amazing work. and, And thank you so much for spending time with us as we wrap up. Uh, Is there anything that you think I should have asked you that I didn't? Is there anything you want to re-emphasize for our listeners? Again, we're really excited to have you uh, keynoting at the conference this year. I'll just uh, re-emphasize that it's a great conference and everybody should come. (laughs) But We'll look forward to seeing you in the fall, if not before. Thanks so much for spending the time with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavita. A special thanks from me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else, you listen to podcasts.